We're not called at this point to lay down our lives as martyrs, but to have our lives at the disposal, surrendered to the Lord, that He may work His will in us. Well, that's what brings me to John 15 tonight, to this analogy, this image of the vine and the branches. Because what we have here is the Christian, a branch, and we're no longer living independently. We're no longer living for ourselves, because we are now a branch grafted into the vine. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher. This is October 31st, Reformation Day, the day when Protestants around the world remember Martin Luther's famous stand, kneeling his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg in Germany. 1517 was the year John Tetzel had come to sell indulgences or pardons to the poor benighted people. Martin Luther had come to the knowledge of the gospel. Justification by faith alone was his trump message. And when he saw the duping of the people by the priesthood of Rome, he took his paper, a nail, and his hammer, and he became the monk who shook the world. Today we take a look at the papacy, its foundation, how did it come about? How did it come to be called popes as the head of the church? And why we've got to go back to the Bible. Stay tuned as we let the Bible speak today. We thank thee for the joy of the Lord that fills our hearts this evening, that it is no vain thing to come into the house of God and to worship thee. For in thy presence and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Thou art a holy God. Thou art a happy God. There is no frustration with thee. There is no disappointment with God. Your eternal purposes and plan is perfect, and it's executed exactly according to your will. And, O oh Lord, we come tonight to learn of your word, and we pray for the, uh, the people within the Roman Catholic system. We pray for light and liberty, and we pray that that there may be the leading of the Lord to draw men to the gospel, the real, solid gospel of the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you'll direct our thoughts this evening and help us and bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you know, I've been absent from the pulpit for a few weeks, and I didn't have an opportunity to mention or to preach on the papal visit, and so I thought I should uh, do so this evening. And then when I got into the subject, I discovered that there really is a double reason, because this is the day for the patron saint, Saint Francis of Assisi, and it is the day when those who follow such uh, ecclesiastical rules and roots, that it is the day for blessing animals. Francis of Assisi, who died at the age of 44 in 1226, was called the patron saint of animals and the environment. 
Now, one of the confusing things about studying Roman Catholic history is trying to weed out what is real history and what is merely folklore. And very often after someone is canonized or that they are made a saint, that uh, there are all kinds of stories that arise about things they did and accomplishments and so on. And one of those stories is that Francis of Assisi, when he was on a pilgrimage journey, he drew aside and he went to a tree that was filled with birds, and he preached to the birds. And then he returned to his group and he referred to them as his sisters. Another such story is that there was a village that was under the attack of a cruel wolf, and it threatened children, and people were filled with fear. But Francis of Assisi befriended the wolf and went up into that mountain and found him, befriended him, and with the sign of the cross took away the savage nature of that animal, and it was no longer a threat to the people. And so, by these means, by these stories, take them or leave them, uh, Francis of Assisi is referred to as the patron saint of animals and the environment. And on this date, October 4th, the day after his death, uh, many uh, bring animals, horses, dogs, cats to churches to be blessed. And, uh, of course, that has its own problem. Now, as you know, the present pope has adopted the name of Francis. That is, is not his own name. He was born in Argentina, and he was given the name Giorgio uh, Mario Bergoglia. And he is, uh, that would be a mouthful for anyone to say in any situation. And so he takes the name of Francis, and that is how he is to be known. Now, prior to his visit to America, New York, Washington, and Philadelphia, there were great expectations of numbers of people that would come for his visit. They were expecting a, a million people in Philadelphia for a mass. I do not know the real figures, but they did not reach anywhere close that expectation. But he arrived as an international figure in a privately chartered jet, and he did not just fly the economy uh, as most people would do. They hired or chartered a jet from Rome, flew him directly into uh, whatever airport on that eastern coast. And there he arrived as an international figure. Now, as a rouge, they met him and drove him off from the airport in a little Fiat, an Italian car, of course, but small and supposedly in keeping with France's idea of ministering to the poor. Now, if you were observing how the Pope was received in America, you would notice that he was welcomed both as a church leader and as a political leader. Uh, he met with his own cardinals, he met with his own people, but he also met with politicians, high-ranking politicians, even the president of America, President Obama. 
He met also people of other faiths, people of other religions, and he met evangelicals. Rick Warren, who pastors one of the largest churches in North America, was there on the Friday evening as a guest speaker at their celebration of families. He also met with the lady Kim Davis, who is now known as that clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses to gay people. She says that she was personally invited to meet the Pope and have at least a moment with him. The Vatican now says they did not specifically invite her, but she just happened to be there. It was not a prearranged meeting. And so there is some conflict on that score. The Pope made political speeches. He spoke about protecting the environment, about refugees, about immigration, and he was treated as a world leader on the stage of politics. And the Vatican claims to have that political clout all around the world. Now, if you research the Vatican City, you can do this very easily. Wikipedia or some of those websites will give you all the facts on the Vatican City. It's very tiny. It is really the smallest of cities. It is 0.6 of a mile by 0.5 of a mile. It is really tiny. And it is populated by under a thousand people. And no surprise, 74% of them are clergy. They are given clergy titles. And yet that tiny little square has political ambassadors with most of the major countries in the world. And it dominates or seeks to dominate with tremendous political clout. The Vatican has its own bank. It issues its own coins. It has its own postal service and issues its own stamps. It has its own phone service, its own internet domain, .va. It has its own pharmacy. It has its own police force, the Swiss guards, who, by the way, speak German. And there's a bit of history to that one. Uh, the Italians denied them the use of their police force. They had to come up with their own. And this little Vatican issues passports. But I don't think people are given passports by birth. Most of them are by appointment, and they're temporary. They are issued for the duration of the time of dwelling there. It has a real system that is 300 meters long that reaches into the city of Rome. It has no airport, but it does have a helipad, and that is its most modern means of transport. And from that tiny state, there comes this Roman pontiff who is received as a godlike character on the stage of world politics in New York, Washington, Philadelphia, the Congress, and so on. Now, my question, how can he do it? How does he accept this massive following, both religiously and politically. You think of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. No crowns, no 
Popemobile, a donkey at best. He ministered in poverty. He had no property to call his own. He never had a political party. He rejected any idea of having an earthly kingdom or political authority. And the contrasts just keep building up. We think of the apostles whom the Lord Jesus sent into all the world to preach the gospel. The Lord said to them that the greatest among you will be servants, not masters. And these apostles went out preaching and establishing churches, saying, Thus saith the Lord. They took no glory to themselves. They took no honor for the power and the conversions of men. They had very simple prayer meetings, simple forms of worship. There were no cardinals with gowns and gold and chains and riches and none of those things. They did not act as ambassadors of an Israeli state. They went as missionaries of the cross. And 11 of them laid down their lives in some form of cruel death. John, who lived the oldest, we believe died of more natural causes, yet in exile, persecuted for his faith in the Lord Jesus. So how is it that a modern-day pope can claim to be the successor of that line of apostleship and yet claim to have this political authority as well as religious standing amongst millions of people. Something's wrong. Something just doesn't add up. And surely any thinking man or woman, any biblically-minded man or woman would say, that is not a disciple of Christ as the Bible presents it. This is something far removed from the simplicity, from the mandate that was given to those apostles. And I think tonight it will greatly help us all to look into the claims of the papacy. I realize the subject is huge, uh, and I want to narrow it down to just a couple of things. First of all, the claim to an historical papacy. How did it arise? Who was this first pope that at least called himself pope? When did it take on a political uh, side to it? And then I want to look at this notion that the pope is the true successor to Peter. If we can get through those things tonight, I think that we will inform ourselves on where we ought to stand with the claims of the papacy. Now, as I mentioned, the command that was given to these apostles was go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That was the mandate. Now, I ask you, did Peter change things? Did Peter reject the mandate that he was given and go and change it into a political merge with religion and establish a papacy? Well, there's certainly nothing in it in the New Testament. And you can read 
right through the New Testament, epistles, Peter, James, Jude, Philemon, Hebrews, and John right into Revelation, and you will not find a body, a society, a ministry, a movement that is the basis or even is similar to what we see in the papacy today. There's nothing in it. Now, this word papal is really a Latin term for father. The term pope, as you know, is not found in the Bible. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, in Matthew 23, he said to his disciples, and call no man father. And we are warned away from this title of father or papa or papacy, as is taken on by the Roman church and the various popes. The Lord also warned his disciples of the rise of false Christs. And so anything that smacks of that, anything that copies or substitutes the ministry of Christ, ought to be treated with great suspicion. There's a red flag should go up. I've got to watch this and be careful I don't follow into some false movement. The early church was marked by a simplicity of worship. There were just two uh, sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table. There were no vestments. Indeed, they did not have church buildings. There were certainly no cathedrals. There were no vast riches and material benefits. And it was not until many years later that things began to change. Dr. Botner, in his book, uh, Roman Catholicism, points out that the papacy really commenced in the year 590 under a man called Gregory, who was called Gregory the Great. And he consolidated the power of the bishopric in Rome and started that church on a new course. And he goes on to quote uh, two sources are the contemporary historians, one who's Protestant, one who's Roman Catholic, concerning the place of Gregory in this development. Now, I didn't have time to put all these quotes into my notes, so I brought the book. And I want to just read to you short little extracts here of this these professors, one, one Protestant, one Roman Catholic. So this is what we would say commonly accepted history. It's not just one version against the other. These two uh, come together to recognize that the first person who merged the religious system, the political system, into one institution with one head, giving him the name of Pope or the system, the papacy, goes back to Gregory the Great, 590. And the first one is a Protestant writer, and he's Professor Renwick of the Free Church of College in Edinburgh, Scotland. His brilliant rule set a standard. This is Gregory he's talking of. His brilliant rule set a standard for those who came after him, and he is really the first pope who can, with perfect accuracy, be given the title. And he quotes another few dates and so on. 
And then he goes on to say, he stands out as one of the chief architects of the papal system. Now, if we were to read just the Protestant version, we would say, well, of course, they're going to put in their biased, prejudiced, uh, historical, rewritten uh, version. But when we see that it matches exactly with a Roman Catholic writer, then we begin to say, well, this must be what we would say accepted history. And here is what the Roman Catholic Philip Hughes says of Gregory. Is generally regarded as the greatest of all his line. It was to him that Rome turned at every crisis where the Lombards, the invaders from the north, were concerned. He begged his people off. He bought them off. He ransomed the captives and organized the great relief services for widows and orphans. Finally, in 598, he secured a 30-year's truce. It was St. Gregory who, in these years, was the real ruler of Rome, and in a very real sense, he is the founder of the papal monarchy. Now, I will not dig into further uh, extracts than to set out those two. So, where did this merge happen? Where did this religious figure, this political figure come together? The, the, the consensus of historians, Protestant and Roman Catholic, say that it goes back to this man Gregory somewhere around 598. And so, this title of Pope arose shortly after. In fact, it was given to Gregory, or offered to Gregory, and he refused it. He said, I don't want that title. But his successor, a man called Boniface, he took the title and was willing to be called and referred to as the Pope or the Roman Pontiff. Now, that is another title that's very interesting, and it's simply the root of it is pontificate, one who offers very stout and haughty words, and who determines, decrees, dictates, and he's referred as the Roman pontiff. And so what you have really is the merge of a political sovereign with a great high priest image, one who is the mediator between God and men, all invested in one person. And yet we know, and the Bible teaches very clearly, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If we're going to give these titles to anyone, we're going to give them to our Lord Jesus. And it was for this reason that the Reformers, some hundreds of years later, recognized the papacy and whatever pope of the day as the Antichrist, taking upon him names and claims which belong to our Savior. And they rejected the papacy as anti, opposite to, and unacceptable to biblical thinking. Vespers and Compline follow the afternoon siesta. The former consists of five psalms, the Magnificat and the Prayer of the Day, and the latter three psalms, the Nunc Dimittis, and a closing prayer. This concludes the divine office of the day. It was divided into seven parts by the early Benedictine abbeys, 
in keeping with Psalm 119, verse 164. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Very often I am asked how it is that in view of our daily recitation or singing of about 30 psalms, we were supposed to cover the entire Psalter weekly. We did not thereby come to know of God's plan of salvation. The answer is very evident to a Roman Catholic. Whenever we heard a particular passage that seemed to be in conflict with the teaching of the Roman Church, we would decide that we were not interpreting it properly. For example, in Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock. And in Psalm 62, verse 6, He only is my rock. We would either ignore the implication that Peter was not the rock, or come to the conclusion that we did not possess sufficient knowledge of the Scriptures to understand the passage. It was the same when we heard passages read from the Old and New Testaments during the recitation of the divine office. As to Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith, we would understand it as reading, Therefore being justified by faith in the Roman Catholic Church. The afternoon after Vespers is generally spent in one's cell. There, in the solitude of his chamber, the monk tries to achieve union with God through spiritual reading, private meditation, and prayer. The Carmelite rule stresses this part of the monk's life and states, Remain in your cell day and night, meditating on the law of the Lord. Actually, a great deal of time is frittered away in idleness and boredom. Another hour of silent meditation in the choir, collation, a simple supper consisting of bread and tea, evening prayers, and the discipline bring to an end the monastic day. The discipline is a public scourging. All the monks return to the dormitory, and each friar places himself in front of the door of his cell. At a signal from the superior, the lights are extinguished, and the monks partially disrobe themselves and proceed to scourge their naked thighs while singing Psalm 51 very slowly in Latin. The scourge, or discipline as it is called, is made of three lengths of rope passed through a woven handle in such a fashion as to form a whip of six ends, each about fifteen inches in length. The tips of the ropes are dipped in beeswax to harden them. The application of the scourge depends, of course, on the fervor of the friar. But the individual usually draws blood. At the end of the singing of the psalm, the superior, the father prior, recites several prayers, and the monks rearrange their clothing. When the lights have been turned on, the monks kneel, each one in his own doorway, and the father prior passes down the corridor, blessing each monk who in turn kisses the scapular, an apron-like garment which hangs on the front and back of the superior. The monks retire, and thus ends the monastic day. We'll continue this testimony by Hugh Farrell tomorrow. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.lt.
tbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast, and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Music